Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is a political activist, organizer, analyst, and author. Her experience ranges from presidential campaigns to local politics to grassroots activism. Karine Jean-Pierre is the chief public affairs officer for MoveOn.org and a lecturer in international and public affairs at Columbia University. Karine is also a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC and the author of the new book, Moving Forward, a story of hope, hard work, and the promise of America. Corinne Jean-Pierre, welcome to oh, Words Matter. Thank you. Thank you for Words Matter for having me. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations on the book. Your story is amazing oh, wow. and thank inspiring. You. Thank you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about you. You are a firstborn daughter of immigrants, Haitian-American, um, and you begin your book with that introduction and talking about it and your introduction to politics. So take us back to that day in July 1988 when you and your siblings were getting together to watch your favorite sitcom at the time, A Different World. Right. <laughs> um, and it got postponed or, or put off for the Democratic National Convention at the time. Tell us about your family and how you felt as a 13-year-old watching yeah. Michael Dukakis, or Dukaka, as your <laughs> Dukakis, mom called him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was wild because I did not grow up in a family of politics. Both my parents are immigrants, as you just mentioned. They were born in Haiti, which was a dictatorship. At the time, they both grew up under, like I said, a dictator, a dictatorship. So politics, having a freedom of speech, wasn't something that they knew or understood. And so at that young age watching Dukakis giving a speech, and he had that story of an immigrant. And it was just beautiful. It drew me in. Because when I was growing up, I had to deal with being the outsider, being kind of the other, and not fitting in. And so when I watched that, it just it just did something to me. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> and so it, we just felt it. We all did. Of course, like you said, my mom would call was calling him Dukaka. And I was like, please, his name is Dukaka. Caucus. But um, yeah, it was kind of that first inkling of what it means to step into the world of politics, to run for such a large office, and to move people, right? To really be an orator and to be a presence where you can unify folks and make people just feel something about this country, about what we have as a democracy. And part of that feeling at the time also came from the song selection that night uh, in Atlanta, which was Neil Diamond's America. Yes. Talk a little bit about that song. I mean, that song is, if you, you listen to the lyrics of that song, um, it very much fit into the story that Dukakis was trying to tell. We're coming to America, being an immigrant, what America is all about, how immigrants are the a fabric of this country. And uh, it really resonated. In the book, I talk about how we all just jumped up and started dancing and singing the song. And it wasn't until I was writing the book that I actually knew it was like Neil Diamond who wrote the song. Like, it's not like, <laughs> not it's until not, the book. Not, huh? not until the book. I was like, who, who? I was like, who sings this song? And I looked it up. I was like, oh, okay. That's some Neil good Diamond. book research right, right there. Right. I was like, okay. I'm sure he appreciated that right. one. Yeah. 
So you say that you wrote the book uh, not just to tell your story, but to make politics feel and seem more accessible to others that are interested and that that may not think that it's as accessible as as you want them to see. Um, And to anyone who wants to take part, your path to being a political operative was not the usual one. No, not at all. Talk about that journey and how it kind of led to you and your experience in politics. So in, in thinking about writing the book, I wanted to, like you said, write a memoir but also a call to action, a sense of urgency, really trying to push people to get involved in politics. But in writing my personal story, I wanted to be raw and honest. And And I I share a lot. I share a lot of my ups and downs, some hardships that I had. And the reason why I did that, because I wanted to, to connect with people and also be authentic. And if anybody ever felt that they were having a hard time and they couldn't get back up, I was hoping that my story would help them. But in that process, I tell, well, how I got into politics. Like I said, my parents are immigrants. I'm an immigrant. Myself. And so growing up in that family, in the immigrant family, that Haitian culture, they wanted me to be a lawyer, a doctor, or engineer. And for me, they, it was the doctor. And so I got pushed and the pressure and the community. And, you know, when we, we are the apple of our parents' eyes, right? And for many immigrants and people, working class people, poor people in general, you are the person that's going to help lift your entire family out of the situation that they're in. And so it didn't work out for me. Being a doctor was not in my path. I suffered through some mental health issue. I talk about it really in detail detail in the book. And so it took some time to figure out what was my passion? What was, what was it that I was going to do? I went to Columbia University, got my master's when I was there. Uh, David Dinkins, who was the first African-American mayor of New York City, became a mentor. Esther Fuchs, who's this really fiery, amazing feminist a professor also at Columbia and Barnard, became a mentor of mine. I went to Haiti for the first time, came back, and I was like, okay, I want to get involved and make a change. And they said, oh, you know, you should get involved in politics, do policymaking, do legislation. You can change people's lives in that way. So it was in my mid-20s that I decided that I was going to go into politics. And I write that. I write that story because many people, they don't feel like politics, as you said, is accessible. You hear stories of folks in their like 18, 19 or in their teens who know that they're going to get into politics, who join clubs, who are part of a legacy family. And it is a easy trajectory. And for many people who look like me or grew up like me, it's not something that you think of or that is accessible. So the point of the story is to say, look, I made it. I got into politics. I got to work in the White House. And you can do it, too. It's not easy. It's hard. But there is a path and we can all do this. One of the things that you also make accessible in the books, in addition to politics, is at least finding a way to get mental health or talk about mental health. And I'm curious how you use the word raw, which you most certainly are in the book, about your experience and your journey going from not being able to even identify it and talk about it to now being able to talk about it on broad platforms to many different groups of people from all different walks of life and backgrounds and encouraging people to speak about mental health issues, to be comfortable talking about it themselves and to seek help, whether it's your favorite running or seeing a therapist or something like that. And I have plenty of political questions, but I want to talk about (laughs) um, that journey of for you being able to talk about that and encourage others. And if you've heard feedback on the book trail about making that accessible too. Yeah. So mental health is so stigmatized. And I wanted to talk about it in the book because I wanted to maybe find a way to not 
have it stigmatized in such a way. And I'm going to be very honest to your listeners. Like, I tried to commit suicide. Thank goodness it didn't happen. And I wasn't successful. And so it was such a deep, deep, horrible time for me. I wanted to share that with folks. And on the on this book trail, it's been amazing. I've had one mother came up to me when I was out in California. And I've been everywhere. I've been to Missouri, Phoenix, Massachusetts, Georgia, Florida. So mm. I've been everywhere. I've met Everybody, you're basically the, running a presidential I, campaign. That's what yourself. somebody said. Somebody was like, "Oh, you're like, a, you're like, a, you're like running a, a campaign, a candidate. I'm a principal. Oh, yay! Finally, oh gosh, God help me." But she came, she came up to me, and she was crying, and um, she had apparently written a book about how her son had committed suicide, and I gave her a big hug, and we just kind of. I let her cry and was comforting her, and and I told her thank you for sharing, and she thanked me for sharing. And I've been in I've been in most of the the audience uh, that I've had, and we talk about these different hard issues. People are people are crying, people are emotional, and I think to myself, well, if I can change one person's life, then I've made a difference with this book, and then I think that re- really matters to me. And so, I've been getting. You know, really emotional, strong feedback from the book and just from the talks that I've been doing, because not everybody has read the book when I talk in front of them. And having that raw, honest conversation seems to matter. People need it. And I think in many communities, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about mental health. We hide it. We don't talk about it freely. We don't talk about getting therapy. And you see that playing out or people coming up to me and we're having those tough conversations and appreciating that I shared that in my book. While we are talking about it, and since the topic came up, I want to let anyone know that if they are having suicidal thoughts or what is called suicidal ideations, there is a suicide prevention line that is 24-7, and the number is 1-800-273-8255. Corrine mentions it in the book, and we wanted to mention it here. Now back to politics. Well, thanks for doing that. It's very important. Yeah. So you mentioned watching Barbara Jordan in yes. the book at the 1992 Democratic Convention. And we actually did an episode on her speech from the House floor a few yeah. uh, a few episodes ago featuring her and, and that incredible speech. Talk a little bit about her and how she inspired you. So just think black young girl in the 80s, 90s, trying to figure it all out. And you don't see a lot of representation. You don't see people who look like you on TV, just in general, certainly not in politics. And so when I saw her and heard her, I mean, right? she is just, she just blows you away. Her voice just blows you away and it calls you to attention. So you hear her and her oration and you're thinking, who is that? And you listen to everything that she has to say. She commands a room. And I remember just the first time I saw her and I was like, who is that? Who is that? And um, so representation matters, seeing her and then reading about her, about how much of the barriers that she was able to break through in Texas of all places. Right. I mean, there's that story that one day she was like governor for a day <laughs> back yeah. in like 1970s, yeah. which is so insane yeah. if you think about it. <laughs> it's it's insane for a woman and it's insane for a woman of color. Right. I mean, just the whole thing. George is still working. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, 
right? Uh, yeah, well, um, that's a whole other conversation. Ah, <laughs> uh, Georgia. Yeah, so it just it just mattered. It just mattered to me. And I remember reading a book about her when I was at that age too. When I when I first learned of her and tried to just eat up all the information that I can about who this woman is and how did she get to where she got to. And even then, even though I I was uh, like you mentioned, eighty eight with Dukakis, ninety two with Jordan, and then even. Obama down the road and Jesse Jackson as well because of all this representation that we all hunger for. I still didn't really think about getting into politics. Um, really? No, not in 88, not in 92, not at all. Not at all. It wasn't until really grad school that I thought of it. And then many of us were inspired by Obama's 2004 convention speech. And I remember wanting to move to Illinois and just working for the guy named Barack Obama, who is also an amazing orator. By that point, I was already in politics. But even when I heard Jordan, when I heard Dukakis, or when I heard about Jesse Jackson's just kind of historical run, I never thought that I would get involved in politics because it just seemed like another world. Right. It didn't make sense kind of mm. jumping from one one state to another state. It felt like very elusive. And uh and that's why I write the book because many people like me at that time feels like, "Oh, what is this? It feels like magic almost." Right. Know? Right. So, you worked for Tish James, uh who is currently serving as the Attorney General for the state of New York and is a little bit busy with a, a, a little few bit things busy. that are going on right now. Yeah. Um tell us about her and what kind of leader she is. I knew Tish James when I worked in the New York City Council and at the time when I was at the New York City Council in like 2004 or 5, she was a newcomer and she had just gotten elected and I remember watching her kind of rise at that moment. You knew that she was going to be a rising star. There's certain candidates that you meet and you just know they're going to do more than where they are currently or where they've walked in, the stage that they've walked in on. And she was that person. And so in 2013, when I was asked to basically run her runoff campaign just for a few weeks, and uh, she didn't have a campaign manager throughout her primary race, and I was asked to jump in and just get her through that hump, and she was running for New York City public advocate. If she had won, which she did, uh, would be the first uh, woman of color to have won in a citywide um, election. And so it was a big race for that moment for her and for the history that she was about to make and she didn't make. And it was just an interesting campaign because she didn't have a lot of money. And um, I was the first campaign manager that they had. And it was stepping into something so different. And she's she's amazing. She's somebody who energizes folks. She's a great grassroots organizer. She's a, a big presence. She walks into the room. She has that presence in the room. And people look to her, look to her to get them engaged and to follow her leadership. But it wasn't easy. Raising money is not easy, especially for women, women of color. And um, and it was a big race. It was a race that ended up being very racialized, unfortunately. It became very ugly in those days of the runoff. But it was a huge victory for all of us. I was really honored to have been on that campaign and led her campaign and helped them get to victory. And now she's doing big things for the state of New York. And we'll see where she goes. Kareen, nobody knows more about losing campaigns than me. Uh, <laughs> I've lost my first three presidentials. But for me, there's like two lessons out of that. One is you make your best friends 
on campaigns that you lose because you don't end up fighting with people over jobs because you're all unemployed together. That's so Um, true. And you learn a lot about your strengths and weaknesses, not just of the candidates, but yourself. Two flawed candidates in particular, you worked for John Edwards and Anthony Weiner. Talk about what you learned there. So it's interesting because um, I'm going to start with Anthony Weiner. I worked for Anthony Weiner in 2008 for about three, three, four months. I'm trying to remember here, and it was between John Edwards and Obama. So John Edwards, Anthony Weiner. Yes, I know, I know how to pick them. <laughs> but at the time when I worked for Anthony Weiner, he was seen as the the darling of the Democratic Party. He was looking to run for New York City mayor. People had thought, oh, he's going to maybe be mayor, or governor, or senator. One day, I mean, they they had held his career at high regard, and I actually had a very good working relationship with him. I learned so much from him, and um, and look, I know that uh, it was reported that he wasn't the best boss, and his colleagues didn't really care for him. But my relationship with him was was very good. One of the things I learned from him as his press secretary at the time when I worked for him, he was this amazing communicator. He was this dogged, hard worker. And the reason I wrote the chapter of Flawed Candidates is because we all have to deal with it, especially when you're young. You elevate, you put someone on a pedestal, and everybody's flawed. We are all flawed. And what happens when you put someone on a pedestal and they fall? And how do you manage through that? What do you do? And I write that chapter because I want young people to be able to maneuver through that. And you have to worry about your career. You do. You have to worry about how are you going to get past this? What is it that you're going to do to get past this flawed candidate that may have just shaken everyone's life up? So I write about John Edwards. And John Edwards also had a good relationship with him. And at the time we were, when I was working for him, it was in the 2008 presidential, and it was just rumors at the time of him having an affair. And then later on, we found out that there was a there was a, a child involved in this too, which is kind of sad if you think about all of it and how it went down. But you have to go through this as a campaigner. These are extremes. These are two extremes. I think these two candidates, or these two political profiles, but. It can happen. And so how do you maneuver through that? How do you get past that? And one of the advice that I give is we should not put people on a pedestal. We should care about the issues, care about what they represent. But putting that person on a pedestal could be very daunting at the end, could be, if you have a flawed candidate. Obviously, this is another issue where I share your pain. But I'm wondering, how do you compartmentalize? I, I think you're right that all candidates are flawed. All humans are flawed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some are bigger flaws than than others. But working in a campaign, you're giving your life to it. How do you sort of block out the things that you know are the flaws of your candidate? And I guess, I mean, rationalize may not be the right word, but work toward the things that you know are right. It is, Joe, it's such a good question because it is hard. I I know, and I've worked on some losing campaigns, clearly worked for some flawed candidates. And um, it's hard because the young folks that I was working with, my peers, they put their heart out for candidates. And it's 
it's hard. It is really, really hard. But I see it as the bigger picture. I have to try and go beyond the person and think, okay, I'm working for this person because I want to make a change. I want X to happen because it's important to me. Or they have said something to me that has moved me or they have a platform that moves me. And so I, I compartmentalize it in that way about the issues and what is it that we're here to do? What's the purpose? Who Whose lives are we trying to change? And you hope that you are working with the right person and you get that and that person wins and they are true to their platform. But it's hard. It is. I, I saw this many times, like I said, it's hard to disconnect that and not feel that emotion for the person. Uh, but we just have to do it because it's just, you have to save yourself. You're working 12 hours, you're working six, seven days, and you have to be able to have your own life. You have to be able to kind of divide that and not be all in emotionally on a campaign because it's not good for you. It really is just not healthy. Can we agree that it's more fun to win? Oh, my gosh. It's so much more fun to win, which is why Obama was amazing <laughs> being on that campaign. But it is. It's just more fun to, to win. It sucks to lose. I mean, that is just the truth. It sucks to lose. So talking about campaigns, I want to ask you what the Democrats got wrong in 2016, what they got right in 2018, and what they need to keep the momentum going into next year. Yeah. You know, I talk about 2016. It was like the ugliest perfect storm for Donald Trump. It really was. I think you think about it, you step back, and there was low turnout for Democrats or low turnout in general, which is a problem. There was a misinformation campaign. There was an energy that was missing from 2016 campaign. There was a swing. We went from electing the first African-American president to swinging a whole new different way. And historians will say that happens, that tends to happen in our history. And I think many of us on our side were not awake. We were not paying attention. Or we thought, oh, my goodness, she's going to win anyway. I'm not going to go out and vote. Oh, I'm not excited about her. Or there's no way we're going to elect him. It was just complacent. And there was voter suppression. If you look at Wisconsin, hundreds of thousands of people could not go and vote. One of the states that we needed to get to that wonderful 270. I mean, that's that's the name of the game. And so I think the lessons that were learned, I think people woke up after 2016. I talked to folks that I know and the fear. I mean, you have folks who are really scared about what's happening in this country especially if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, if you are part of the Muslim community, if you're Jewish, if you are of a community that is vulnerable, you're worried right now. And I think there's a reason why you saw a historic number of women coming out and running in 2018, because they saw, they, they saw the writing on the wall and what was happening and they needed to go out and vote. It's not easy to get women to go to run for office, not just vote, but to run. And women raised their hands and said they're going to run for office. And so I think it was a wake-up call, a real wake-up call for folks. And they've been watching what's been going on for the last three years, and it's scary, the divisiveness, the ugliness. And I think that's what you saw in 2017 in states like Virginia and Alabama. You saw it in 2018 in taking the House back and some uh, governor's race, especially in the upper, upper Midwest. And you saw it recently in Louisiana and Kentucky, and now Virginia's blue. And I think people are awake. And I think there is this awareness of, okay, 
where are we taking this country? What direction are we going to take this country? And November 2020 matters. And who are we as a country? And I I feel like that's resonating very loudly. Now, for whoever is the Democratic nominee, they have a hard job. I think we're going to need a movement. We're going to need a movement to win in 2020. And so they have to be able to tap into that energy and create a movement and get more energy. How are you going to get those 4.4 million people who did not come out and vote in 2016, but did in 2012 for Obama and stayed home and they just stayed home in 2016? How do you get them back out? How do you get folks who uh, don't normally vote to come out? How do you energize the black community? How do you energize the young community? So that is going to be really, really still tough to do, even though people are awake. You still have to keep that energy going. And it does matter who is at the top of the ticket. Of the folks that were on the stage in Atlanta, did any of them strike you as particularly able to lead a movement of the type that you just described? I think that the candidates have to do a better job on saying why they are running and how they're going to win and really put out the existential threat. I have not quite seen that. I think it's great that we're talking about issues. It's a primary, and that's what we should be doing. And I think most of the Democratic candidates are kind of on the same on the same kind of trajectory, right? They want to make health care affordable and more accessible. Great. They want to fix immigration. Great. They want to make sure we have a better standing in foreign policy. I mean, there are things that they actually all agree. There's varying degrees, but they want the best for this country. And so now it's really convincing folks how are we going to win in 2020? And I don't think that they've quite done that. But I do think that I'm, a, I'm in a place where the, the nominee could be a bus and I will go, you know, I will go vote for the bus. I think that we are at a crossroads in our country. And if we do not get out and vote in 2020, I'm scared. We are a young democracy. People forget that. And we have someone who steps in our democracy every single day, who has not read the Constitution, steps on the Constitution, who debases the office that he holds. And it scares me. It scares me for our democracy. And what does that mean? And um, I worry about that. Harid, let me ask you if you were the campaign manager for any one of the three out of the top four candidates, Warren, Buttigieg, and Sanders. Each of them have a real base of support, and each of them have not yet connected with minority communities. Yep. What what does one of them have to do? I mean, I can imagine a situation. I'll pick one randomly. Warren, if she figures out a way to do that, she has set herself away from the pack. But how how would you advise uh, any of those three candidates? So here's really the problem. I think that they, the three of them have, Biden is just a known quantity. And he was Obama's number two. Black voters know him. They respect him. They appreciate him. So the question is, and black voters want to, older black voters in particular who support Biden, they want to beat Donald Trump. And right now, they are not convinced that the other three can beat Donald Trump. And that's the thing. It's like, how do you move How do you move black voters who are with Biden over? Like, how do you convince them that you can beat Donald Trump? 
That's the number one thing. And it is a very difficult thing. They're going up against not having the name ID, except for Bernie, not having the name ID that Biden has. And so it is tough. So it is continuing to get out there, be authentic. People want you to be authentic. And policies and plans are great, but they want you to be authentic. They want you to come and ask them for their vote and convince them why you are the person that they can see standing up on stage next to Donald Trump and they can see you beating him. I don't know how this would look if there wasn't a Donald Trump kind of scenario in this, because that's where a lot of voters, that's where they think. They are like, we want to we want to beat this guy. We want to beat this guy. Who can do it? And right now, that's why Biden is doing so well, because in their minds, they see that. They know him. He's comfortable. He has so many qualities that they are OK with. And so it's hard. It is a very hard thing to do. But they just have to keep trying, keep going out there, go to South Carolina, talk to people, ask for their votes, go to the places where you find African-Americans go into their community and ask them for the vote and convince them why you are the candidate that can beat Donald Trump. Speaking of a candidate doing exactly that, Senator Elizabeth Warren gave a speech on black women in Mm -hmm. the workforce in Atlanta on the eve of the debate. And Congresswoman Presley had to step in in the middle of that speech to deal with uh, some protesters that Senator Warren at the time was, was letting say their piece in the middle of her speech. What were your thoughts on how she approached what you said they should do, go to where the people are. I think she did exactly what she needs to do, which is go to the, where, the place where people are. Look, people are going to protest. They're going to protest, and that's okay. And they want their voices to be heard, and you have to let them speak their mind and say what it is that they need to say. But I thought, great, she was there, and she tried. And I thought, she's lucky she had Ayanna Presley to step in and deal with that moment because it is hard. It is hard. I remember in uh, 2015 with the Black Lives Matter movement. That was a serious situation that young people were dealing with. The death of young brown and black boys, brown and black women, girls being murdered and killed. And so they were trying to bring up an issue that truly mattered to them. And you have to listen. You have to listen. You can't turn away from it. You can't pretend it's not there. And so she did the right thing by being in there, being in the community and talking to the community. And sometimes there's a protest and you have to figure out how to handle that in a real way. And 2015, that was tough for candidates dealing with the Black Lives Matter movement. And they needed to deal with them in a serious way because they were talking about an issue that affected the community. So speaking of dealing with protesters, you've written a beautiful book. You have a a really uh, fascinating career. But a lot of people will you know you as the person who took on a protester to protect <laughs> Kamala Harris. What was that like? Yeah, so it's so it's really interesting. I'm glad you asked me that question, Joe, because at the time I didn't know who he was a protester. At the time I thought, who is this guy that is coming on stage? And I was worried. I was worried for the life of and the well-being of Senator Harris, who is a black woman, a woman of color, running for president. And we are in a divided country. 24 hours prior to that moment was the Virginia Beach shooting. There was a mass shooting. And so I thought, who is this guy coming on stage? And my instincts just kicked in. And it was, I mean, it wasn't scary for me at the time. I was more scared for her. And I stepped in wanting to protect her, thinking harm was going to be done. 
And it wasn't until he took the mic where you realize, okay, this this is a protester. But at the time, it was, oh, no, what's happening? This is scary, and I cannot let this happen. And I have to tell you, uh, Joe and Katie, that moment, I didn't realize this. It started this nuanced conversation about how women feel, the safety of women. I was shocked because you had three women on stage, three women of color, and I heard from so many, so many women afterwards who said, wow, I felt unsafe before and no one has come to my aid. Or there's times where I just feel I felt this way. I felt you when this was happening, when you were trying to protect Kamala. And so there was this real conversation that I was having with women about their own safety, their own agency and how they feel in this space and how they're treated. And so it was an interesting moment. It played out for I did not know, think it was going to go viral. You know, you don't do something thinking it's going to go viral. And it did. And a lot of it is because the emotions it brought up for many, many people. Yeah, it's it's important to note that there were three women of color on that stage at the time. And as is often the case in this country, the statistics of the way that violence impacts women of color versus yeah. even their white peers in this country are dramatic. Dramatically different. Uh, and, and dramatically different in, in the wrong way. So it's important to highlight that. Before we let you go, we want to talk. We haven't gotten to uh, your day job, which we talked about at, at MoveOn.org. I want to talk about that a little bit. There's over 5 million members, mm-hmm. I think. But mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about it and how it started, when it started, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and what it's looking forward to in the upcoming election. Uh, speaking about the beginning of Move On, I was having a conversation just this morning with a very prominent journalist who was asking me, did anybody run ads in your defense in 1998 during the impeachment of President Clinton? And I said, of course they did. It was moveon.org. It was sure like, was, yeah. That's where that started? That's how Move On like, started. Yeah. It was a very prominent journalist under 40, though, so I, I give oh, him a okay. break. <laughs> yeah, that's the irony of Move On. You know, to, to your point, Joe, it started off just like that. It started off because of how Bill Clinton was being treated. And a couple of folks decided to, to start a petition, and it was basically telling Congress to censure Bill Clinton and move on. Like, enough is enough. And so that is how Move On was started about 20 years ago, a little bit more than 20 years, I think 21 years now ago. And it turned into a platform of petitions. Um, It now has been involved in electoral politics and helping elect candidates. It uh, is involved in pushing policy and legislation in Congress. And it is more than 5 million people. And so it is now the largest independent organization out there, a progressive organization. And for this coming year in 2020, we will mobilize our members, get them involved in the 2020 process because we still have to hold on to the House. We still have a lot to do besides the presidential election. There's an up and down ballot that we have to focus on and is training our members, organizing, getting them out to vote, keeping them educated and aware. And this is going to be the next phase of 2020 that we do is really getting involved and making sure we win in November 2020. 
That also reminds me of one other question Mm -hmm. that I think is important to talk about and you talk about in the book. One of the chapters is not all roads lead to Washington. Mm -hmm. You talk about the importance of state and local politics. You talk about the importance of reading the actual newspaper as opposed to getting our news from a Twitter feed or even from the online version of the Journal or the Times or the Post because that's where you get all of the local happenings and what's important to your daily life, perhaps more so than the banner headlines. But talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think politics is local. It matters. It matters who holds local offices in your community, in your town, in your state, and being aware of what is happening around you. And so I tell people it's important to vote. As Americans, we do not vote, which is unfortunate. It's always low turnout. So we all need to get out and vote and make sure we get our communities involved. But we need to lead in too. We need to to educate ourselves and read that local paper, understand what your local electeds are doing. It's very important. It's, it's imperative to your daily life. And so I write about that and I encourage people to run themselves. And it's just kind of leaning in a little bit more is what I try to do in the book. It's like, what else? We all need to be a little bit more political active, a little bit more involved in our community because it matters. So I think It's good to end where we started. You talked about listening to and dancing to (laughs) Neil Diamond's America. But you talk about that as a little girl and how that gave you optimism for this country and for the future of this country and that you still have that optimism. So as an immigrant, as a black woman, as a member of the LGBTQ community, Explain to our listeners the reasons for that optimism. I have to tell you, while there are moments where it's really scary and you wonder what's going to happen next, I am hopeful. I'm hopeful for so many things because the last three years, I have seen actions by people who have come together in this country to help all of us. For example, the Women's March, when women came together and uh, I saw it. I remember being on the roof of 400 North Capitol. We were doing coverage for MSNBC and seeing all these women just taking over Washington, D.C. with their pink hats and wanting their voices to be heard. I remember that first weekend of the presidency where the Muslim ban had happened and people organically just went to airports, took to the streets, and you saw this amazing, beautiful mosaic of folks out there protesting, and you had lawyers going to airports and offering their services, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is hopeful. There's been stuff like that. Move On held a Families Belong Together march where hundreds of thousands of people showed up across the country to give voice to kids, babies being separated from their parents at the southern border when that story finally really hit the national airways in 2018, the summer, June of 2018, and how devastating that was. But the fact that people came together and lend their voices and made themselves very loud and clear. And by the way, now there's, what, 70,000 kids who are who are orphaned and we don't know if they're ever going to be reconnected. I mean, this is happening in our name, what's happening, what the administration is doing. And just the electoral process since 2017 of, you know, what we did in Virginia in 2017. And now Virginia being blue, getting a Senate seat in Alabama, getting a gubernatorial seat in Kentucky and, and Louisiana and all these women running and winning. And so I think there is hope. I think there are things that could make us hopeful that you see people are coming together and and speaking up. And now it's, can we take it to the next level in November 2020? And I'm hopeful in that as well. 
Well, the book is called Moving Forward, a story of hope, hard work, and the promise of America. It's a great read. Would recommend it for any young people thinking about getting into politics or people that have young people in their lives looking to volunteer going into an election year and to get into politics. Karine Jean-Pierre, thank you so thank much you for joining us. Thank you so much, us. guys, for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Katie. Thank you, Karine. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.